Section three, part five of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Home. Years seem to have passed. They have mellowed life into ripeness. The start and change and hot ambition of youth seem to have gone by. A calm and joyful quietude has succeeded. That future which still lies before me seems like a roseate twilight, sinking into a peaceful and silent night. My home is a cottage, near that where Isabel once lived. The same valley is around me, the same brook rustles and loiters under the gnarled roots of the overhanging trees. The cottage is no mock cottage, but a substantial wide-spreading cottage, with clustering gables and ample shade such a cottage as they build upon the slopes of Devon. Vines clamber over it, and the stones show mossy through the interlacing chambers. There are low porches with cosy armchairs and generous oriels fragrant with mignonette and the blue-blossoming violets. The chimney-stacks rise high and show clear against the heavy pine-trees that ward off the blasts of winter. The dovecote is a habited dovecote, and the purple-necked pigeons swoop around the roofs in great companies. The hawthorn is budding into its June fragrance along all the lines of fence, and the paths are trim and clean. The shrubs, our neglected azaleas and rhododendrons, chiefest among them, stand in picturesque groups upon the close-shaven lawn. The gateway in the thicket below is between two mossy old posts of stone and there is a tall hemlock flanked by a sturdy pine for sentinel. Within the cottage the library is wainscoted with native oak, and my trusty gun hangs upon a branching pair of antlers. My rod and nets are disposed above the generous bookshelves, and a stout eagle, once a tenant of the native woods, sits perched over the central alcove. An old-fashioned mantle is above the brown stone jams of the country fireplace, and along it are distributed records of travel, little bronze temples from Rome, the Pietro Duro of Florence, the porcelain busts of Dresden, the rich iron of Berlin, and a cup fashioned from a stag's horn, from the black forest by the Rhine. Massive chairs stand here and there, in tempting attitude. Stewed over an oaken table in the middle are the uncut papers and volumes of the day, and upon a lion's skin, stretched before the hearth, is lying another tray. But this is not all. There are children in the cottage. There is Jamie, we think him handsome, for he has the dark hair of his mother, and the same black eye, with its long, heavy fringe. There is Carrie, little Carrie I must call her now, with a face full of glee and rosy with health. Then there is a little rogue some two years old, whom we call Paul, a very bad boy, as we tell him. The mother is as beautiful as ever, and far more dear to me, for gratitude has been adding, year by year, to love. There have been times when a harsh word of mine, uttered in the fatigues of business, has touched her, and I have seen that soft eye fill with tears, and I have upbraided myself for causing her one pang. But such things she does not remember, or remembers only to cover with her gentle forgiveness. Lawrence and Enrica are living near us, and the old gentleman, 
who was Carrie's godfather, sits with me on sunny days upon the porch, and takes little Paul upon his knee, and wonders if two such daughters as Enrica and Carrie are to be found in the world. At twilight we ride over to see Lawrence. Jamie mounts with the coachman, little Carrie puts on her wide-rimmed leghorn for the evening visit, and the old gentleman's plea for Paul cannot be denied. The mother, too, is with us, and old Trey comes whisking along, now frolicking before the horses' heads, and then bounding off after the flight of some belated bird. Away from that cottage home, I seem away from life. Within it, that broad and shadowy future, which lay before me in boyhood and in youth, is garnered, like a fine mist, gathered into drops of crystal. And when away, those long letters, dating from the cottage home, are what tie me to life. That cherished wife, far dearer to me now than when she wrote that first letter, which seemed a dark veil between me and the future, writes me now as tenderly as then. She narrates in her delicate way all the incidents of the home life. She tells me of their rides, and of their games, and of the new planted trees, of all their sunny days, and of their frolics on the lawn. She tells me how Jamie is studying, and of little Carrie's beauty growing every day, and of roguish Paul, so like his father. And she sends such a kiss from each of them, and bids me such adieu and such God's blessing, that it seems as if an angel guarded me. But this is not all, for Jamie has written a postscript. Dear father, he says, mother wishes me to tell you how I am studying. What would you think, father, to have me talk in French to you when you come back? I wish you would come back, though. The hawthorns are coming out, and the apricot under my window is all full of blossoms. If you should bring me a present, as you almost always do, I would like a fishing rod. Your affectionate son, Jamie. And little Carrie has her fine rambling characters running into a second postscript. Why don't you come, Papa? You stay too long. I have ridden the pony twice. Once he almost threw me off. This is all from Carrie. And Paul has taken the pen, too, and in his extraordinary effort to make a big P, has made a very big blot. And Jamie writes under it, This is Paul's work, Pa, but he says it's a love blot, only he loves you ten hundred times more. And after your return, Jamie will insist that you should go with him to the brook, and sit down with him upon a tuft of the brake, to fling off a line into the eddies, though only the nibbling roach are sporting below. You have instructed the workmen to spare the clumps of bank willows, that the wood duck may have a cover in winter, and that the bobo lincolns may have a quiet nesting place in the spring. Sometimes your wife, too kind to deny such favor, will stroll with you along the meadow banks, and you pick meadow daisies in memory of the old time. Little Carrie weaves them into rude chaplets to dress the forehead of Paul and they dance along the greensward, and switch off the daffodils, and blow away the dandelion seeds, to see if their wishes are to come true. Jamie holds a buttercup under Carrie's chin, to find if she loves gold, and Paul, the rogue, teases them by sticking a thistle into sister's curls. The pony has hard work to do under Carrie's swift riding, but he is fed by her own hand with the cold breakfast rolls. 
the nuts are gathered in time and stored for long winter evenings when the fire is burning bright and cheerily a true hickory blaze which sends its waving gleams over eager smiling faces and over well-stored bookshelves and portraits of dear lost ones while from time to time that wife who is the soul of the scene will break upon the children's prattle with the silver melody of her voice running softly and sweetly through the couplets of crab stories or the witchery of the flodden tale then the boys will guess conundrums and play at fox and geese and trey cherished in his age and old milo petted in his dotage lie side by side upon the lion's skin before the blazing hearth little tom tit the goldfinch sits sleeping on his perch or cocks his eye at a sudden crackling of the fire for a familiar squint upon our family group but there is no future without its straggling clouds even now a shadow is trailing along the landscape it is a soft and mild day of summer the leaves are at their fullest a southern breeze has been blowing up the valley all the morning and the light smoky haze hangs in the distant mountain gaps, like a veil on beauty. Jamie has been busy with his lessons, and afterward playing with Milo upon the lawn. Little Carrie has come in from a long ride, her face blooming, and her eyes all smiles and joy. The mother has busied herself with those flowers she loves so well. Little Paul, they say, has been playing in the meadow, and old Trey has gone with him but at dinner-time Paul has not come back. Paul ought not to ramble off so far, I say. The mother says nothing, but there is a look of anxiety upon her face that disturbs me. Jamie wonders where Paul can be, and he saves for him whatever he knows Paul will like, a heaping plateful. But the dinner-hour passes, and Paul does not come. Old Trey lies in the sunshine by the porch. Now the mother is indeed anxious, and I, though I conceal this from her, find my fears strangely active. Something like instinct guides me to the meadow. I wander down the brookside calling, Paul, Paul, but there is no answer. All the afternoon we search, and the neighbors search, but it is a fruitless toil. There is no joy that evening. The meal passes in silence. Only little Carrie, with tears in her eyes, asks if Paul will soon come back? And all the night we search and call, the mother even braving the night air, and running here and there, until the morning finds us sad and despairing. That day, the next, cleared up the mystery, but cleared it up with darkness. Poor little Paul! He has sunk under the murderous eddies of the brook, his boyish prattle, his rosy smiles, his artless talk, are lost to us forever. I will not tell how, nor when we found him, nor will I tell of our desolate home, and of her grief, the first crushing grief of her life. The cottage is still, the servants glide noiseless, as if they might startle the poor little sleeper. The house seems cold, very cold, yet it is summer weather, and the south breeze plays softly along the meadow, and softly over the murderous eddies of the brook. Then comes the hush of burial. The kind mourners are there. It is easy for them to mourn. The good clergyman prays by the bier. 
O thou who didst take upon thyself human woe, and drank deep of every pang in life, let thy spirit come and heal this grief, and guide toward that better land, where justice and love shall reign, and hearts laden with anguish shall rest for evermore. Weeks roll on, and a smile of resignation lights up the saddened features of the mother. Those dark morning robes speak to the heart deeper and more tenderly than ever the bridal costume. She lightens the weight of your grief by her sweet words of resignation. Paul, she says, God has taken our boy. Other weeks roll on. Joys are still left, great and ripe joys. The cottage, smiling in the autumn sunshine, is there. The birds are in the forest boughs. Jamie and little Carrie are there, and she, who is more than them all, is cheerful and content. Heaven has taught us that the brightest future has its clouds, that this life is a motley of lights and shadows. And as we look upon the world around us, and upon the thousand forms of human misery, there is a gladness in our deep thanksgiving. A year goes by, but it leaves no added shadow on our hearthstone. The vines clamber and flourish, the oaks are winning age and grandeur, little Carrie is blooming into the pretty coyness of girlhood, and Jamie, with his dark hair and flashing eyes, is the pride of his mother. There is no alloy to pleasure, but the remembrance of poor little Paul, and even that, chastened as it is with years, is rather a grateful memorial that our life is not all here than a grief that weighs upon our hearts. Sometimes, leaving little Carrie and Jamie to their play, we wander at twilight to the willow tree beneath which our drowned boy sleeps calmly for the great awaking. It is a Sunday, in the weekday of our life, to linger by the little grave, to hang flowers upon the headstone, and to breathe a prayer that our little Paul may sleep well in the arms of him who loveth children. And her heart, and my heart, knit together by sorrow, as they had been knit by joy, a silver thread mingled with that gold, follow the dead one to the land that is before us, until at last we come to reckon the boy as living in the new home, which, when this is old, shall be ours also. And my spirit, speaking to his spirit, in the evening watches, seems to say, joyfully, so joyfully, that the tears half choke the utterance, Paul, my boy, we will be there. And the mother, turning her face to mine, so that I see the moisture in her eye, and catch its heavenly look, whispers softly, so softly that an angel might have said it, Yes, dear, we will be there. The night had now come, and my day under the oaks was ended. But a crimson belt yet lingered over the horizon, though the stars were out. A line of shaggy mist lay along the surface of the brook. I took my gun from beside the tree, and my shot pouch from its limb, and, whistling for Carlo, as if it had been Trey, I strolled over the bridge and down the lane to the old house under the elms. I dreamed pleasant dreams that night, for I dreamed that my reverie was real. End of Section 3, Part 5 Recording by Lee Smalley. End of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eek Marvel.